0: Before listening, please know that this episode talks about baby loss. When Joshy was swimming the other day. Yep. Yeah. And he was told he's not very good at backstroke and he needs Aww. to go backstage. I know. I know. That's that's rough feedback
1: for a seven year old, isn't great, it? Is it? No. I know.
0: Aww. Are we ready?
1: <laughs> uh, incoming.
0: and welcome to Are You Sitting Uncomfortably with me, Gemma Greaves, founder of Nurture and Cabal. This is a new podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. It's no secret that creating safe spaces to talk openly and share our personal stories has become a bit of an obsession of mine. So why uncomfortable? Uncomfortable. Well, quite simply, I feel we don't have enough of life's difficult conversations. We tend to avoid getting uncomfortable. We leave so much left unsaid. And let's be frank, you don't grow or learn anything new by staying in your comfort zone. I honestly believe powerful storytelling is a catalyst for change. So love that I get to chat to incredible guests who all have a story and who are all ready to sit uncomfortably. So let's begin. Today's guest is Katie Ingram. Having studied drama at university, Katie gave up her dream of becoming an actress when the media industry turned her head some 20 years ago. Over her career, she has worked in companies from Sky, Cartoon Network to The Evening Standard, where she is the Trade and Insight Marketing Director. Making her the guardian of the evening standard brand. I reckon that is no mean feat. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very grand. I'm not sure it's not. <laughs> Go with it. <laughs> <laughs> Katie is herself a baby loss advocate and the incredible founder of the hashtag no words campaign, created to improve the language surrounding this heartbreaking yet often silent issue. Finding solace in the stories of others, Katie's on a mission to break the silence and create safe spaces for those who have experienced such a tragic loss. Born and bred in Norwich, she loves cooking, and once auditioned for MasterChef. I did. Didn't get through? No, I didn't.
1: (laughs) Made it like three or four stages in, though, before... Oh, well done. Well, we'll have to talk
0: about that. (laughs) Um, But perhaps her biggest claim to fame is she once featured in a music video for
1: Ash back Back in the 90s. (laughs) I want to see that. (laughs) Welcome, Katie. It's really great to have you join us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such a nice time to be here. It's good. Good. Excellent. So I have to ask, Katie, are you sitting
0: uncomfortably?
1: No, I'm pretty okay. And I was thinking about this on the way in. I have become very accustomed to the discomfort around the story we're about to talk about. So I am very comfortable telling it. What becomes quite interesting is how uncomfortable it makes other people when I'm talking about it. And I am aware, so I'm going to kind of caveat this conversation, that because this is my story and I have told it a lot, but it is also desperately sad, it maybe doesn't always sound as sad when i'm telling it like uh, maybe i don't feel as connected to the emotion of it because i'm i'm very used to telling this story so i thought i might just sort of say that up front actually because i think sometimes i i don't know whether i sound like i'm a little disconnected from it I'm, I have no doubt you'll probably connect me to that story as we're Definitely. talking. And we've
0: spoken about <laughs> We have, yeah. You, and I wouldn't say disconnected in any way. I'd say empowering in, in talking about what's happened to you to help others.
1: And it, it's the delivery of that because I do feel like I've got a job to do here and that's a really important thing for me to do. So in the delivery of it, I think sometimes it can, it can maybe sound a little disconnected. Um, but we shall see. So if I tell you I have a copy of that Ash video, would you be uncomfortable? Oh, God, no. I love it. (laughs) No, it's brilliant. I've got seals from it somewhere.
0: (laughs) I love that. Okay. So last time I saw you in person was back in 2019. Yeah. When you were expecting a baby girl, and from memory, you are quite far along at that time. Yeah, if
1: it was 2019, so she was born in the April, so I probably, yeah, I think it was towards the end of that year that we yeah. met. So yeah, I would have been visibly pregnant, definitely. I remember you feeling very pregnant, you were very excited, and um, I remember feeling so
0: happy for you and excited for you. So, so what happened next?
1: I, I was excited, desperately excited, because... I've always wanted to be a mum. I I don't remember a point in my life where I didn't want to be a mum. And that pregnancy was an IVF pregnancy. So it had been a very long time in the making. But that's a whole different podcast. I had a, a good pregnancy. I had a little bit of a scare around nine weeks. But it turned out to be probably something that was related to the IVF. And after that, relatively smooth pregnancy. I was 40 I turned 41 just towards the end of that pregnancy. So I was considered a geriatric mother, in inverted commas, which is horrific. I was just about um, to say,
0: the, the geriatric, uh, I remember
1: when I heard that, I was absolutely appalled. It's it's such it's a terrible, such term, a terrible term. But there are lots of terrible terms in and around this, and specifically medical mm. terms that are hard. Because I was over 40 and because it was an IVF pregnancy, I had, some extra scans towards the end of the pregnancy and they started to pick up just a couple of little things that weren't, they weren't overly comfortable with. And it had always been the case that again, because of my age, because of the IVF, they weren't going to let me go over term. So some of the terminology of pregnancy maybe doesn't relate to everyone, but 40 weeks is the point at which you are full term. And quite often they will let pregnant women go to 42 weeks pregnant. But that was never going to happen for me. If I'd got to 40 weeks, they were talking about being induced. Mm. And induction was 100% set up as probably the worst way you could go into labour. Like It just felt like something I didn't, I, I didn't want for myself because everybody was telling me it was awful. I went into the hospital for a scan on the... So we were coming up to Easter weekend and I went in on the Wednesday. They said, yeah, do you know what? We we need to do this. And th- th- I had had a little stay in hospital just a little bit before that where they were sort of monitoring me and stuff. But nobody was saying there's any reason to worry here. They were just kind of keeping an eye on me. And then they got to a point when they were like, yeah, we uh, we, th- we think you should be induced. And I, and I was like, "Whoa." not today. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Of course, we're not doing it today. I'm a control freak and I wasn't planned for that day. Can we come back tomorrow? And they were like, yeah, no problem. Come back tomorrow. And part of what they were picking up was that the fluid around the baby was starting to drop off a bit, but it wasn't hitting any dangerous levels or anything like that. So they're like, yeah, come back tomorrow. So went home, finished off the packing of the bag and all of that stuff, went to bed, woke up reasonably early that morning because you have to call quite early to make sure they've still got a space for you. Woke up, went to the toilet, as you do quite often when you're 39 weeks pregnant. I Um, remember that. (laughs) (laughs) And um, lied down, felt a sort of movement in my quite significant bump at that stage. Packed everything up, you know, got the car seat ready, put all the bags in the hall, took a picture, sent it to the family, like, oh, we're off to the hospital. Got to the hospital, checked in with the midwives. They put me on a bed Husband was with me, Ben. He was sort of sat, and and then you've got this sort of nervous excitement. It's like, oh God, you know, today's the day. Today's today's the day. This is going to happen. It's all going to start today. And the doctor came and they said, we're just going to do a bedside scan to make sure everything's okay just before we start the induction process, which will happen later on this morning. So fine, okay. Laid down, and like I said, I'd had quite a lot of scans by that time. So sort of get everything ready. They say it's going to be cold and all of that sort of stuff. And the look on the doctor's face immediately the atmosphere just changed. Now, I'd been in a lot of scans, so I felt that. Ben had been in some, but not all of them. Didn't necessarily pick up on it, but I could kind of see this doctor's face and I saw him looking at the nurse. And he said, oh, I just, I can't quite get the right angle, which by that point, the baby's big by that point, so that felt a little bit strange. He said, you have a really full bladder. So I said, well, should I go and empty my bladder and then come back? And he said, oh, yeah, that might help. So they left. I went to the toilet and when I came out of the toilet, there was that doctor, that nurse and a load of other people who I didn't recognise sort of huddled in a corner. And I thought, "Mm, that's weird. Went back to the bed, sat down and I said to bed, something, something's going on here. I don't really know what it is, but something's not right. And he's like, calm down. We don't know what's going on. See what happens. And he came back and he said, could we take you to a different room? And immediately I was like, nothing good happens in a side ward on a maternity unit. That doesn't feel good. So, of course, stand up, go in. And he looked again. He got the scan scanning machine out again. And he looked at me and he said, I can't find a heartbeat. I'm sorry, but there is no heartbeat. And those three words, I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. There's more than three words. My whole world just crashed in that second. And the doctor didn't speak particularly good English. And from then on, he kind of, you could see he just didn't know what to say. And the midwife who was with me just held my hand. And they said, we need to get a more senior sonographer to come and just make sure. And they left the room and we were just in, the two of us were just in this white side room. And it felt like a movie. I almost felt like I'd become outside of my body and I was just watching this play out. And the lady walked in and she sat down and she said, yeah, I'm sorry, I do have to confirm there is no heartbeat. And in that second, I suddenly realised I couldn't hear footsteps. Nobody was hitting a big red button on a wall. Nobody was rushing to our aid. Nobody, Nobody could change what had happened, and what had happened is my baby had died on the day I was supposed to give birth. And I guess in that moment, I'm instantly a different person, <laughs> instantly a different person. And that was the Thursday morning. We were then in the hospital until the Sunday. And, yeah, nobody could change what happened.
0: And I read that, that you were in the hospital for a few days and you're you're glad you had that time Absolutely. With absolutely your baby,
1: I Otterly. Otterly, yes, Otterly. We didn't know she was a girl, so she didn't have a name, but we had a few names in mind. And it was actually Ben when we first met her said, I'll never forget, he said, She's so soft, there's no hard edges. She's Otterly, and I don't know why soft and hard edges, yeah, just that's just what he said. Beautiful um, name. really lovely name, Otterly Eve. Eve is. Ben's maternal grandmother, so Ottilie Eve Ingram. So I was given choice. Well, I wasn't really given choices. But obviously, you're then told you've, you've got to give birth. That makes sense, right? The baby needs to come out. The majority of people would then be induced. And there are, there are lots of things. So when the baby is alive, they have to put the baby first. So the mother will never be over-medicated because they're putting the baby first. When your baby's died, they can just ram you full of drugs and get the baby out pretty quickly. But I didn't feel I could do it. And it's there's very few times in my life when I've actually said I can't do it. But that was one where I really felt I couldn't. I, and I've met a lot of people who have had stillborn children since, and I'm the only one I know who's had a caesarean. I think in part that was probably because it was Easter weekend and the bereavement midwife, that's an actual job, she wasn't there. And I think if she had been there, she might have tried to talk me round the other way because it its deemed to be better. But I got my own way eventually, which again is something that's fairly normal for me um, because I tend to be a bit of a fighter and that was what I needed to happen. And so she was born at about seven o'clock. So we found out around 7.30 in the morning and she was born at 7 o'clock that night in theatre and they were incredible. And then we were allowed to be in hospital. Now, I, I was given lots of choices. I could have held her when she was born. There were lots of things that they gave me as options and I was terrified because who knows what a dead baby looks like. Like I was so frightened to hold my child because I didn't know what she was going to look like. It was so scary. And in retrospect, there are decisions I made in those few days that I think I might have done differently if I'd have known a few things.
0: But you can't know, can I, you? No, you because can't
1: know. No one prepares Except you. I can talk about it and give people some of those things, which is part of what I'm doing now. But yeah, I, we, we got to spend time with her. And whilst we were in hospital for those days, we were allowed to have her with us as much or as little as we wanted. And all of our family came. Everybody got to meet her. Everybody got to spend time with us and her until we, you know, they never asked me to leave, but there came a point where I felt I was ready to go. And at that point, we walked away and I didn't see her again after that. I could have done, but I chose not to. Gosh. Katie, just, you know, I know your story, but
0: listening to you, my heart just breaks. And as a mum, it really... It's your worst nightmare isn't it and i can't I can't sugarcoat that it it absolutely is because you don't or as a parent as a parent
1: yes I, yeah. that's really true yeah. yeah it is it is a as a parent as a family as a grandparent as an aunt, as an uncle, so the ripples of a loss like this go far and wide, but I am her mum and you carried her. I carried her. She is half of me. You know, Ben is her dad, and together we created with a little bit of science and magic from the guys in Harley Street. But um, <laughs> together we all made this baby. But I carried her, and I had to go through the physicality of giving birth to her. Physicality? I'm not sure that's the right word. Um, Who cares? No, <laughs> <laughs> um, sounds sounds fine to me. And and I think Ben went into a space that a lot of fathers do around this time he went into i need to look after my wife now and and so his grief was a little bit delayed of course he was sad of course you know everybody was absolutely blown apart but he went into i can look after you and we can get through it together so that was his way of dealing with it for for quite a long time and it's a really difficult question
0: because we're talking about a very difficult experience how how do you think it's shaped you because when we were talking before you said to me there's a Katie before Ottilie
1: and a, and a Katie after uh, there absolutely is it took me a very very long time to just start to find joy again and a lot of people talk about this with grief they finding a space where you can allow grief and joy to live alongside each other. Takes work, and I'm not sure I am always there. So Ottilie would have been four in April, so she'd have been going to school this September, which is mind blowing. And there are days where it feels as raw as it did the day that she was born, and there are other days where I feel like more able to cope with it. And I think that will be the way for the rest of my life. So there are times where grief just jumps up and bites you on the ass when you're not expecting it, and it can it can blow me out for a day. I can just be totally sent off kilter for an entire day. And it's almost like a sort of grief hangover in a way. You kind of have something that triggers you and then you just feel really out of sorts for a little. I feel really out of sorts for a while. And I I felt social interactions were exhausting because I was putting on a display. I was fighting every kind of bone in my body to be the Katie I was before and actually she didn't really exist anymore and there's been some really physical things on that as well like i i used to straighten my hair every day and yeah, last now time I, I don't saw you, yeah. you had straight hair <laughs> this <yeah>. is natural <laughs> um looks lovely <laughs> thank you very much but that was a control thing i was like i've lost control of everything why why am i bothering to straighten my hair the last time i straightened my hair was the day of her funeral and then i just thought there's no point to this anymore but the biggest thing was that i've always thrown myself headfirst into social situations and i'm not sure i will get back to that person also not sure i want to be because i'm ottilie's mum so yeah. you know that's an important part of who i am now and being a parent changes you anyway it's just that this changed me in a way that is harder for people to see or understand or know about finding that space where you can be sad and happy and allow them to both exist is really hard but once you find those days you start to find a few more of them and a few more of them and a few more of them and then you move forward
0: and i hope you're kind to yourself on those days and accept that the grief is is there and and you have to let it be there and
1: yeah sometimes be, you be do with it. yeah sometimes you do just need to sit with it for a little yeah. while and sometimes that can be really fleeting there was a moment in the summer i was away with my dad and my stepmom and ben and Should mention my daughter. We have a second daughter. (laughs) I know. There's
0: there's a very happy part to your life now, which is yeah.
1: So Noah was Noah Noah was 18 months old on Sunday. So um, happy birthday Noah! Yeah, happy half birthday. And 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 she doesn't sleep Um, much. um, No, she does not sleep. But who cares? She's here, and we get to enjoy her every single day. I mean, I do care because I'm exhausted. But on the grand scheme of things, this is a short part of part of our lives together we were away and we were down on the south coast and we were flying a kite there's a there's a term that some people really love and some people are really uncomfortable with about rainbow babies and so noah is technically our rainbow baby a baby born after the loss of another another baby that's Um, a
0: really joyous
1: name though rainbow it
0: is colorful some
1: people really struggle with it because the way it comes about is that people talk about the rainbow is the the light after the storm and some people struggle with the storm Storm. being their their first loss which i do understand but i grew up absolutely obsessed with the wizard of oz so if i can attach a rainbow to anything then i'm all for it we were flying this rainbow kite and i always kind of say when i see a rainbow it's like Ottilie's there like she's sending us a message or she's around or you know that it, for me there's, there's a little connection with her and this rainbow kite was up in the sky and I looked at my dad and I just said it's like Ottilie's with us on the beach and we had a real moment and I could have in that moment kept that to myself but I shared it and we all just went really silent for just 30 seconds or so and then it passed and we carried on and that was a lovely moment to just take that grief Embrace it, sit with it, let it be a part of our family experience, and then move on with it. Actually, my dad's really taken that and run with it, and written a beautiful story for children around it, which we really want to do something with. Gorgeous, so, yeah. Really it nice. feels like really connected you together yes, in that moment. It did, yeah. And there are moments where that that comes across. That you know that happens.
0: So, talking of terminology, and um, you know, when you just say rainbow, for me, that just sounded very positive. Actually, I can understand why that would be difficult for some people. Whereas I think of rainbows like you, Wizard of Oz, and it's Josh's favourite thing, my son, to draw. But there's terminology for for that, but there isn't there isn't for what you experienced.
1: No, is there. And it it became really really apparent very quickly that the language of baby loss is non-existent, and. And that makes your experience harder every single day from the moment your baby is lost. And I, I don't think that matters whether it's a very early loss or a very late loss. There is no terminology for it. And part of that is because we just don't talk about it. And there are loads of kind of avenues for this particular part of the conversation, but it, it started in hospital. They, they don't have the language. I saw one doctor at one point. He just kept saying "early fetal demise," "early fetal demise." I was like, "Can you stop talking about my baby as an early fetal demise?" Like Sounds that is so oh, cold, awful. He was actually really lovely, but a very old school doctor using a very cold term. Cold's a probably very not good knowing word for any better though, because that's the medical language. It that... is, and and to a certain extent, that helped us a little bit because it did take away the emotion out of it but there there were so many areas where there wasn't any language and as we sort of went through it i suddenly realized that language is something i love I, you know work in marketing i do writing and i've got an english degree alongside the drama you know words and all of that stuff is is part of who i am and i realized that i didn't have an identity because i didn't have a word that was for me there was nothing in our language that allows you as a parent who's outlived your child to identify yourself so we understand widow we understand orphan and immediately in a conversation if you say to someone you know do you have have a husband and she she says I'm a widow you go oh okay I understand that I don't have that and it makes so many conversations (laughs) difficult. difficult and and I started to look into it a little bit more and and do a little bit digging around it, and um I actually managed to contact Susie dent who the, oh, I forgot the actual, she she is on countdown, yeah, and she was so so kind and so lovely, and she did a little bit of looking back for me and said yeah there isn't there is no word, and part of that we think is because there was a period of time where sort of around victorian times it was it was just so common that people just cracked on you know uh, another baby has died and And that is awful in itself because those, yes, it was common, but that doesn't make it any less painful. And I really feel like it's now so painful to talk about that we don't talk about it. So the language can't develop. And actually that doesn't really help. If there's no language and there's no conversation and there's no discussion, then there's no awareness and there's no understanding and then... If there's no awareness, then the charities have to work harder to raise the money to do the research. Without the research, the numbers don't go down, and do you know the numbers are horrendous. Horrendous. So yeah. th- there is a stat around one in four pregnancies yeah. ending in loss, but the current stats is there's there's thirteen babies every day in this country that die, either before, during, or in, or within the first four weeks of their life, which equates Gosh. to Roughly one every two hours, which is just horrendous. And, And in terms of stillbirth, it's around seven babies a day. And the UK is not good in the kind of stats of developed countries. There are a lot of countries across Europe with much better rates of stillbirth than we have. And I really genuinely believe that by talking about it, And developing this language, we can not only help the people who come, sadly, behind us and walk in my footsteps, but also sort of build a better awareness, better research, give us a chance of, you know, understanding. Because 60% of stillbirths, you will never know what happened. I will never know why Ottilie died. And within 48 hours of being told my daughter had died... We then had to make decisions about post mortem I mean who just the thought i mean i I didn't even know that a post mortem it, it didn't occur to me why would it of course. you know my my side, why would it? but they're kind of standing in front of me saying, "Well, there's various levels of of post mortem and some are more invasive than others, but actually, in this case, we're probably not going to find anything anyway. well, thanks for that helpful yeah. And they were right. We don't know. But it's what the way it's
0: presented. I mean, they were slightly th-
1: better than that. But we had to make decisions about how invasive a post-mortem to have on our tiny baby. I mean, she was, she was 6'12", but she just felt so, so tiny and precious. Mm. And we had to sit and talk about how invasive we wanted any procedures to be. With the knowledge that we were probably never going to find out anyway, but if we didn't follow that route, we definitely would never know. And so how much did we want to know? And then you have to move on to that and start planning funerals and and all of those things. And what do you want the baby to be wearing? And, you know, like, these are just huge, mm. mind-blowing decisions that affect you for the rest of your life. And... If we talked about it and you were given just a a better vocabulary to help, I think it would make such a massive difference for people. And so your No Words campaign... And that's where No Words came from. I had a lot of messages from people because I have the most incredible group of friends and family. Yeah, some people disappeared. Some people have come back and... But, you know... So, so so with that people that disappeared because one of the subjects i
0: do want to explore with you is nobody knows what to say
1: and i know that you experienced that yeah absolutely and but the people who had a handle on their emotional intelligence around some of this stuff i got a lot of messages from people saying i don't have any words or there are no words no need to reply lots of people said no need to reply which i think is a really really good way to communicate with someone in any grief because you, you don't need a response back, right? You're just letting somebody know that you're there. But so many people said to us, there are no words. And that really started to connect my marketing brain because they didn't have any words to say to me because they didn't know what to say. There are no words to describe this person that I've become. And all of this sort of started to tie together and it gave me a bit of purpose. I can do something here. I can tie all this stuff together and put a a bit of a campaign together to help raise awareness, help raise a bit of money for some of the charities. But also my ultimate aim is to find the word. What is the word for a parent like me? And, And develop that and bring it into the English language and get people talking then we can immediately start making things better. If I was able to say I'm a still parent, for example, and they understood what that meant, because I am still a parent and my child was still born, so there's there's something in that for me. I don't know whether that is kind of what I will settle on, but it feels that that does a job for me. That's the first time I've heard that, but it sounds...
0: How can you say right? But it it sounds apt.
1: That's a really good word for it <laughs> it's fitting it fitting it, it cover for me it covers past present and future in a way because it sort of tells you where I'm at it tells you what's happened still parent gives me an identity and that's a really important thing for anyone to have clarity in their identity so I guess that leads me nicely on to what
0: what really makes you uncomfortable around this
1: what makes me uncomfortable is when I feel like I've got no voice. If I feel like I have no voice, either because I've not been heard or I'm too scared to use my own voice or if I feel like my voice is being silenced for any reason, it makes me really uncomfortable and it leads to frustration. And one of the things that will make me cry more than anything else is when I feel frustrated. And it was one of the things around this that made me feel really uncomfortable. I didn't have a voice because I didn't have the language. and. And that's really difficult because I I make people feel uncomfortable by having this conversation. And so many times as a grieving... Why do you make people feel uncomfortable having this conversation? Because people don't know what to say. And so the number of times I've had conversations with people and told them the truth of my story, I end up looking after them. Because it's horrible. Nobody wants to hear about a baby dying. Nobody. But because not many people choose to talk about it, the conversations aren't there. So it's quite, it's really shocking. And then I end up looking after that person, which I'm quite, I'm kind of okay with in the depths of my grief. In the very early days, I didn't have the capacity for it. It took me, I would say probably close to six months before I could look the majority of people in the eye when i talked to them because all i saw was my own pain being reflected back at me and i couldn't handle it and and people try to fix yeah. fix it and and and
0: not give you that time and space to heal because they're trying to be kind and good but actually you didn't find that very helpful at times did you
1: no uh, it's it's a very very common thing with people who have had any baby loss and by that I mean a very very early miscarriage It might even be people who've been through IVF and had a failed mm-hmm. embryo transfer yeah. which I've also experienced you know that is still a baby loss because there's there's the hope and the mm-hmm. expectation and it's such a part of what we do as being British is to try and fix things and if there's anything you shouldn't do in this situation is to say at least if you if you're starting a conversation with someone who's lost a baby and you feel the need to try and fix it take a step back because starting a conversation with well at least you know you can get pregnant I have said that to people I I 100% know I have said that and now I know that that was probably the most insensitive thing I could have said in that moment because it, it doesn't help. Allowing people to live and inhabit their grief, whatever point that baby has has been lost, is so important. And you can't fix it. Also, you can't make me feel any worse, really, because my baby's died. So... I'm in a pretty dark spot anyway. So not saying anything and shying away from the conversation and removing yourself from a dialogue with me is also pretty hurtful. I understand that because people get really frightened about saying the wrong thing. The chances are you can't make someone feel worse. So just being there
0: and, you know, I I can't begin to understand, but I'm here for you.
1: I'm here for you. Or, and I understand that you don't know what to say because I wouldn't have done either. But knowing that you care in any way, just you might want to just sit with me. You might want to watch some terrible telly. You might want to have a conversation about politics or, you know, like change it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, maybe not. No. But, you know, being led by the parents of that child, you could ask someone, very simply, would you like to talk about your baby? And they might say no. And if they do, then that's fine. You can move on. But at least you've connected with the fact that you understand what's happened and you know it's really difficult. So many people don't ask the same questions as you might ask of a of a living baby. But for me, I know what time Ottilie was born. I know what she weighed. I know what she looked like. I know what colour hair she had. I don't know what colour eyes she had because her eyes never opened. But I can tell you those things and I like talking about it because she's my baby. And this is the only context I have to talk about her in, which is also partly why I choose to do this, because I get to talk about her. She's you know, I love her.
0: And you radiate energy when you talk about her, which is which is lovely too. She
1: was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. But we don't know what she'll look like when she's four or, you know, I can imagine those things, but I can tell you what she looked like. I can show you pictures and, I, you know, I'm really happy to show them if somebody wants to see them and that's great, but not saying anything or trying to fix it are really difficult spaces for me and I know for lots of other people who feel the same.
0: So something that really resonated with me personally and actually, if I'm honest, made me feel a little bit uncomfortable was when we had our pre-conversation and you said that, Anyone that's experienced a loss, whether it's an early loss or a a later loss, you know, the grief is grief. And I agree with that entirely. But that so many people almost undermine their own loss because they think yours is much bigger. And actually, that's not helpful in itself. And I remember thinking as someone that has experienced an early loss around around 10 weeks, which was was incredibly difficult at the time and obviously still is. I remember thinking that is the kind of thing I would have said to you. If we'd have had a conversation, I would have said, my loss is nothing like yours. And that really resonated with me. It's an interesting
1: thing, isn't it, that we feel like we need to create this sort of hierarchy of grief. So many people have said exactly that. I lost a baby at nine weeks. I lost a baby at eight weeks. But it's not as bad as what happened to you. And actually, I think that's doing themselves a disservice. I don't know whether everybody shares this opinion but I genuinely feel from the moment you find out you're pregnant for the majority of people it doesn't matter whether you're four weeks or 40 weeks you have hopes and dreams and plans and expectations for what your life is going to become and your hopes and dreams and expectations disappeared in exactly the same way that mine did the physical nature of it is yeah different probably the connection because the chances are you didn't get to feel that baby move and I'm really I'm really sorry that you've experienced it but actually what happens is the more I talk about it the more people tell me it's happened to them I mean pretty much and this is just the sad thing about
0: it it's, at first I didn't feel like I could talk about it because I felt that it might be my fault you know the way we we blame ourselves but the minute I felt like I could um, and it's from being around amazing people one by one pretty much everyone yeah it's happened to me too but i've never talked about it
1: um i felt ashamed about it i think shame is one of the most desperately sad things about baby loss at any time and i think it's something that's getting better i um my dad was desperately excited to be a a grandparent, as all of Otterley's grandparents were. And he'd been talking to his neighbours about it. And there was a lady who he lives near and she was very excited. After Otterley was born, everybody has to tell the story that the baby's gone. And I'll cut a very long story short. But this lady came through and said, actually, do you know what? That happened to me in the early 70s. I've never talked about it. She had two children after that she'd never told them that they had an older brother and she'd not dealt with that grief and as a result of Ottilie being born, she did. She went and she sought help and they honoured their baby and she told her children. But people had crossed the road, visibly crossed the road rather than speak to her because 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 they just didn't know what to say. say. And they didn't, I genuinely don't believe that anybody would do that vindictively and exactly the same with this sort of hierarchy of grief. It's not about your loss being less than my loss. Your loss is your loss and your experience and you're allowed to deal with that. But we will have shared experiences in that and some major differences and that's okay. We don't all have to be the same in our grief. Yeah. And an early loss has its grief. So what do you think needs to be done so that friends,
0: family, listeners, workplaces get
1: more comfortable
0: to be able to talk about baby loss?
1: It's a big question. I think we just need to find more language and raise awareness of the fact that it's happening. And I think the government has an element of responsibility around it. There's a policy going through at the moment around miscarriage leave, which is really important, acknowledging. Because if you have a miscarriage lots of people will have a surgery a Mm. procedure Mm. but it can be days it can be weeks so for some people it can be even months but there's no leave so I think I think there's a kind of policy element around it I think parents possibly more women but parents in general because I think dads often get left out of this conversation and it's really important that you know, we hear a lot about male suicide and, you know, the inability of to talk for men. But I think unless we start with women, it's not going to manifest itself amongst the dads as well. But women like me who feel able to talk about it, if we can, and that's why things like this are really valuable, talking about it in spaces that aren't already aware of it. So I've done quite a lot of podcasts and writing and, and blogging for people who are already sort of i guess support for people who are in it but unless we do lots of talking to people who are outside of it um then that doesn't change giving people the language to feel comfortable talking about it and workplaces that then follows on i had an incredibly supportive team in in everybody at the evening standard they were unbelievably good and have given me a platform to talk about it publicly as well. So they've published a few pieces for me about yeah. us and that's great. I have to keep going. And in my head, I've got a book. And if I could get there, then that, you know, that kind of keeps helping around finding the language and discovering the language of it because I think it's, it's the language that will make a difference. And like I said, the, the language of change the awareness. The awareness changes the ability to raise money. The ability to raise money increases the research, which hopefully brings the whole subject down anyway. And break the silence. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So last question. Why is it important to get
1: uncomfortable? Because if you don't get uncomfortable, nothing changes. And sitting comfortably in a society where we're squishing emotion in and holding on to it rather than going, I feel uncomfortable about this and we can change it. And not everybody has the strength to do that. And I Get that but for me putting my discomfort to one side to make changes is so important it allows me to cope with my grief personally it helps heal push me forward but nothing will change if we just put our heads in the sand and pretend it will all go away and ultimately babies will continue to die because of that and that cannot happen we we have the ability to reduce the number of baby deaths by being uncomfortable so we should
0: and on that note i think it's a perfect place to end the conversation i just want to say thank you for being so open brilliant i mean I'm, i feel completely inspired in this moment and i've just got complete admiration for you but also i i just want to give you a hug <laughs> i mean that's feel free <laughs> <laughs> um but i but i want to say thank you because you're the first person that got in touch with us to say You'd heard the previous pods and you'd quite like to come on and share your story, but but thank you for doing that because you're the first person and we want to encourage more people to do that because we want to have more of these uncomfortable and very important conversations that need to be had.
1: Thank you and thank you for for inviting me in and you know, taking that, that seriously and giving me the platform because like I said, this is for people outside of the people who've already experienced it and that's really important. Thank you, thank you very much.
0: I'm Gemma Greaves and Are You Sitting Uncomfortably is a Fresh Air production and the producers are the gorgeous Izzy Clark and wonderful Clara Kavanagh. We are new on the scene, so if you enjoyed this podcast, found it useful, valuable, then please do me a massive favour and follow us, recommend us and all that good social stuff. The bigger the following, the more opportunity we have to have the best guests and I want to have these uncomfortable and crucial conversations with incredible people like Katie. Thank you so much. Until next time.